Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and professor of Holy Land Studies at Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about the Bible. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. This week, I am joined by Dr. Nicholas Shazer, who is the professor of Hebrew Bible at Israel Bible Center. And we are here to talk about his course, Women and Gender in the Bible. Now, I'm a female who teaches the Bible and thus often find myself in contexts in which people want to tell me their ideas about what is or is not proper about what I do. Of course, I have a lot of my own ideas on this, and I am starting to write a couple of Bible studies and a book that is focused on the ignored women in the Bible. All of this means I am most interested in this conversation with Dr. Shazer. Today, we talk about specific Hebrew words and how their interpretation changes the meaning of the text. And even though we cover a lot today in this podcast, we only scrape the surface of what is in his class, much less in the whole Bible. So join me today as we untangle what the Bible says from our cultural assumptions about the text. I love it because in your course, you talk about over 30 different passages of women who are displaying characteristics of leadership, their prophets, their ministers, their judges. And it just, you do all of this before you start to tackle some of the more problematic texts. So There's a part of me that's just really curious about why you developed this course. I kind of want to dig into that first before we get into what all the good stuff that's in your course. But what prompted this development? Boy, that's that's a great question. So I, I went to graduate school at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, and my advisor there was a scholar named Amy Jill Levine. We love Amy Jill Levine. She's the best. And uh, <laughs> not only is she interested in Jewish Christian relations, just like I am, hence my reason for going there to be her student, but she's also interested in in feminist interpretation of the Bible. And so uh, I took a course from her. I think it was called Feminist Interpretation of the Bible. My first semester I was there. And so that kind of set me on a trajectory to be thinking about these things. Also from like a a Christian perspective, in Christianity, I feel like there are certain people groups who get kind of the short end of the stick, oftentimes in like traditional Christian discourse. One group of happens to be Jews, and I've kind of dedicated my life to sympathetic and positive readings of Jews and Judaism in the New Testament. And so I think it's kind of natural that also women kind of get shortchanged, I think, too. I've gravitated really to these and other people groups, but I think that Jewishness and gender are two really important things that we need to be spending more time on and being honest with ourselves about what the texts say, regardless of what Christian traditions might propose. Going back to the text and starting from there and building upwards, I think, is always a really good 
practice. And I think that we will be surprised by some of the things that we see in the biblical text and how egalitarian and how actually exultant the Israelite scriptures are of women, which is pretty amazing. I would be remiss if I didn't bring Deuteronomy into the conversation. (laughs) So here I am bringing it in early on. People call Deuteronomy an egalitarian text because it's always talking about when the crowds of people come. It is men, women, owners, slaves, adults, children. It's foreigners. It's kind of this all-encompassing landowners and those who don't own land. When I was doing research on Deuteronomy, a lot of people say this is a unique thing to Deuteronomy. And I think, well, I don't necessarily see Hmm. that. And I think your course does a good job showing that's not necessarily true. We in modern day have preconceptions of what being a woman in a patriarchal society is like. And it's just, it's really interesting to get into some of those details with you in the course. Definitely. You know, it's funny. I don't spend a bunch of time on Deuteronomy in the course itself. So it's great that you front-loaded that, being the Deuteronomy specialist that you are. That That's <laughs> really interesting. Obsessive person yes. about Deuteronomy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, so that's wonderful, actually, to hear about Deuteronomy. And I guess I comparatively haven't done a bunch of thinking on the question vis-a-vis Deuteronomy. So it's nice that you can text it in that way. And And you're right, I think that the rest of the the text of the Torah, the rest of the text of the Tanakh, Israel's scriptures, and certainly going into the New Testament, I think that we find just a bunch of pro-female, pro-feminine, pro-woman texts. In my experience, there's that word patriarchal, and I think it gets thrown around a lot. And, you know, those who would want to say, well, okay, so the Society of Ancient Israel is built on the patriarch, built on the male in the family, and everything sort of trickles down under the male, hence patriarchal. And, you know, let's be honest, you can get a a couple texts in the Torah that say things like, it's clearly speaking to men, things like, thou shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or your neighbor's slaves, or your neighbor's animals, or possessions. So what we have is this kind of listing that starts with the male, of the family and then kind of drops down below that and women are included as a kind of possession. That's that's definitely true. I mean, the text says what it says. But if we focus only on that, it's essentially like looking through a keyhole and thinking that we're going to see the whole room inside. And I think that if we open the door, and and what I'm trying to do is kind of open the scriptural door here, I think that by and large, we see female autonomy, we see female leadership, we see women working inside and outside that quote-unquote patriarchal familial system. You know, in fact, listeners might be interested in this, there's a wonderful article in the top journal of academia, and this journal is called the Journal of Biblical Literature, JBL, and there's a scholar named Carol Myers who is fantastic Hebrew Bible slash Old Testament scholar. I love her. (laughs) I love her. (laughs) So good. So some years back, she wrote an article called, Was Ancient Israel a Patriarchal Society? And essentially, the conclusion is, "Mm, not really. Myers says that, again, that word patriarchal gets thrown around a lot in our modern context, Mm. but it actually doesn't properly describe what was going on in ancient Israel. And she just does a great job of nuancing these points. And that's kind of what I'm trying to contribute to in this course. And I really like that because what you do, what Carol Myers and Cynthia Shaper Elliott and some of these other scholars who are yeah. doing amazing work on looking at 
the reality of the lived life of women in ancient Israel is they're uncovering that that it's the modern day audience that has preconceived ideas about what patriarchal means. So if we're to That's follow right. what you're saying right now is maybe it was a patriarchal society to a certain extent, but maybe what we assume is patriarchal is not their lived reality or patriarchal in Egypt or Assyria or Babylon is not the same as patriarchal in Israelite times. Definitely. That's absolutely right. We need to take into account differences in people groups, differences in culture, differences in societal assumptions. And, you know, since we're not all archaeologists, I certainly am not an archaeologist. So from my perspective and the perspective of this course, we need to look at the biblical data that we have. And so the question is, okay, so these the writers of the of the Bible were probably male and probably elite. I mean, they can read and write. But not only can they read and write, they're not clunky writers. They are geniuses. They're the greatest artists in the history of civilization, to put it mildly. And, and all so, we have to do is go listen to your Psalms course to dig into <laughs> what some of that artistry is, right? It's it is absolutely beautiful word smithing that they do. Absolutely right. Beautiful wordsmithing and yeah, just wonderfully expressive ways of showing uh, narrative. So there's our biblical data. So it actually gives us a wonderful historical window into what elite people in ancient Israel thought about women. It's just a beautiful treasure trove of information. So let's start at the beginning. Genesis and the story of Adam and Eve, I say this oftentimes, but I think that the author of those texts couldn't have done more to show fundamental, and here's a academic word, ontological equality between men and women. Uh, ontological just being existential. In, in their very existence, in their very being, there is equality. And so this is the first statement we get in the entire Bible. So we should take this very seriously and let that be the rudder of our ship going forward. That way, when you run into sort of patriarchal sounding texts in the Torah, you need to be reading them within the framework of what we've already heard in the first statement of the Bible. So what's the first statement of the Bible? God makes the human being ha'adam in Hebrew, that means the human, out of the dust of the ground. So we're taking chapter two, not chapter one. That's right. Yeah. Chapter two, not chapter one. Now, if you wanted to go back to chapter one really quickly, the capstone of God's creation at the end of chapter one is humanity. And in the image of God, God creates Adam, humanity, and then it says, Zaharu Nikeva, male and female, God created them. So we've got these men and women both created in the image of God. And then we move into chapter two, where it gets sort of more specific about this creative process. The human being, usually called Adam in the text, but that's actually not what the Hebrew says. Again, it says the human. Uh, and then of, from this human, this first human, comes the second human, which is the woman, who's later called Eve or Chava, which means living. And in English translations, in traditional translations, I'm pretty sure in every single English translation that's ever been made, it says that the woman was created from Adam's rib. That is, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that God takes, God puts Adam into a deep sleep and removes one rib, and out of that bone, God creates this woman. Now, in, in traditional interpretation and even in art that we see, this kind of leads to a subordinate view of women. That is, the woman is made from just one 
fairly arbitrary and minuscule piece of the male anatomy, and hence she's kind of less than the man. And then you map that on to women being less than men, since this is an archetypal story of creation. Okay, so here's the problem with that, is that the Among Hebrew many. text... Among uh, well, Yes, <laughs> for sure, yes. Among many problems. But the textual Hebraic problem is that the Hebrew text doesn't say rib. There is no word in the Hebrew Bible, so that is in biblical Hebrew that we have in the Bible, there's no word for rib. Ancient Israelites were not doctors in the medical sense of the, uh, the modern term, and they weren't categorizing, like there's no word for femur, for example. Right. Uh, <laughs> categorizing specific bones. There's word for bone, but there's no word for rib, all right? And the word that's used in Hebrew is the word tselah. Tselah, and this is how you find out what any word means in the Bible, by the way. You go and you look at the other instances in the Bible. It happens 40 plus times in the Bible. And every single time without fail, Selah never describes a rib. It always describes a complete side of something. So for example, when Moses is told to make the Ark of the Covenant in the wilderness, you're to cast gold rings for one Selah of the Ark and gold rings for the other Selah of the Ark. Now, the Ark is a wooden box. A wooden box has no ribs, but it does have sides, and so that's what Selah is doing here. Another example is there's one point where, where David and his sort of entourage are walking up a hillside, and the word for side there is Selah. Well, hills don't have ribs, but they do have sides. This is the case for all 40 instances. So if that's true, then when we go back to the creation of Eve, we need to be translating this as side. Why is that difference important? Because we go from a minuscule piece of male anatomy that can cast women as subordinate to men. And now we read that God takes an entire side of Adam, literally cuts Adam in half. And so, and this really works well when you actually start to read the rest of the chapter, because God brings the woman to Adam. And what, is the, what does the human say? Finally, this one is what? Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So you really don't even need to know Hebrew here. If, it were, if she were made from a rib, Adam could only say, now this is bone of my bone. That's not what Adam says. Bone and flesh in a complete side. And that's why God says when they come back together, when they davak, when they cleave together as, as husband and wife, as it were, then the two become besar echad. They become one flesh again. So that, I mean, that's really how we get the modern term, like your other half, right? If you've got a spouse, it's your other half. That's where this imagery comes from. So why is it important? Because if, if the woman is the other half of the man, it denotes total and utter ontological equality, not subordination. And that's the first theological and gender declaration that the writer of Genesis makes. Oh, I do like a good word study. Even if you do not read Hebrew, you can still use online tools to help you do this kind of careful reading of the text. Now, there are two more words in Genesis 2 that describe the woman. And the typical English translations have contributed to what I think are incomplete understandings of what God's design is. In Genesis 2.18, God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an ezer konegdo, 
Now, this is translated in a variety of ways, but usually along the lines of a helper who is suitable for him. Let's talk about that. This is very interesting to me because I will often ask people, what comes to your mind when you think of a helper, if God is going to create a helper? So can we talk about Ezra Kenegdo <laughs> for mm -hmm. a moment, what that phrase actually is? Because I think both of those two words are important to understand what they really mean. Can we talk about what these two other words are and then maybe Absolutely. how that helps us shape who the woman is? Definitely. So, right. So God says it's not good for the human being to be alone. And then it says, I will make an Ezer Kenegdo. Okay. So let me back up. First of all, remember in Genesis 1, and God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Day four, God saw that it was good. Day six, at the end of everything, it's tov meod. It's very good. So that's the, we get that word tov, good, throughout Genesis chapter 1. And then we are hit with something that's not good in Genesis 2. That should really make us stop. So something's not good. What is not good? It's not good that the human being is alone without an equal for him. So it, it's interesting, like the goodness of creation. Yes, everything's very good at creation. In chapter 2, we get something that's not good, and then the response to that is the woman. <laughs> And she makes it all good, okay? So that is, like, sh she fulfills the goodness of God's creation, as it were, when coupled with the human, with the person later called Adam. So God says, I'll make an ezer konegdo. So ezer in Hebrew, it does mean helper, someone who comes to someone's aid. But in this case, it's not like a helper in the kitchen, like helper doing menial household tasks or dealing with the kids while the man goes out and wins the bread. In fact, Ezer, in, elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, most often is uh, a descriptor of God. So like the psalmist will say, you know, the Lord is my help. Well, that's Ezer. So it can't mean subordination. A helper in biblical thought is usually God. So if anything, it's, it's a power word. Because warriors are also Ezers, right? I mean, warriors who come to the aid of a subordinate city or a village and Yes, yeah, so there's right. a lot of warriors and soldiers and God. That's right, exactly. Yep. So yeah, it's it's helping those who are unable sometimes to help themselves. And so yeah, Ezer I think is really a power word. And then we've got Konegdo. It's actually made up of two Hebrew words. Well, really technically three. The K in Konegdo just means like or as. And then the O at the back, Konegdo, just means him, really, in Hebrew. And then what do we have in the middle? We've got this word neged. Neged in Hebrew means literally standing in front of something else. It, it's the equivalent of, of you standing in front of a mirror or standing in, in front of something that is, is equal. So honestly, the best translation is not make a helpmeet for him or a partner suitable for him. Honestly, it means I will make an equal helper. I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't even say for him, because then the focus is on him, right? It's all about me. Right? It's, it's uh, a connecto, like, him, like himself. I will make an equal partner like himself. That's how I would translate that, or something to that effect. So it takes it away from the realm of a helper in the kitchen who's like just helping out and subordinate to this idea of 
someone who's going to consistently aid this person in, in his life and be an absolute equal to him. So it just goes to the, it's just underscoring what I've already said about this ontological equality. We've got the woman and the man being equal sides of each other. So of course, as their connecto should be understood as, as a, someone who brings aid, but is an absolute equal to the man. So just another way of the biblical writer underscoring the fact that men and women are total ontological equals. Which is then also really interesting. I, I like to try to focus sometimes just on the very end of the chapter. And you already quoted or made reference to this verse where the man and his wife, they leave their father and mother and they become one, right? And there's something interesting about that because again, if we go back to this idea of what we assume out of a patriarchal society, the woman leaves her house and goes into the man's mm -hmm. house. Mm -hmm. And there's something even right there, these little clues where you're like, if he's leaving his father and mother, and if she's leaving his father and mother, there's something interesting about this partnership mm. already reflected in, in this second chapter of sacred scripture. That's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. The idea is not like, you know, the little wife moves in, to the to her father-in-law's house, right? And just stays yeah. there, right? Yeah. You know, that's not what we have. We've got the man leaving his father and mother. So you're absolutely right, breaking out of uh, that standardized initial patriarchal system or whatever. System's probably too harsh a word, but but that framework. There's autonomy in that, right? There's autonomy for the new couple who are supposed to be equally helping one another out. This is radical stuff. And, and it, <laughs> it's radical. Right? And it, and it just, again, this is what sets us off for the rest of our biblical journey. So everything that we read after this, this needs to be the anchor for how we understand gender dynamics throughout Israel's scriptures and even beyond into the New Testament. We are not done talking about Eve. Because what then do we do with the New Testament writings that talk about Adam being created first, not Eve, or that the serpent deceived Eve? Yep, you don't want to miss part two of this conversation. Plus, what about the other women in the Hebrew Bible? Next week, we talk about two I happen to have a great fondness for. Be sure to like or subscribe to this podcast so you do not miss out on the conversation. If you are already intrigued by some of Dr. Shazer's ideas, you should sign up for his course using the link in the episode notes. And if you're enjoying what you hear on this Israel Bible podcast, would you let other people know about us by sharing a link to this episode on any of your social media platforms? Thank you for helping us spread the news about what is available at IBC. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all of the good sounds you hear. And thank you for being curious about the world of the Bible. 